there is nothing worth living for unless it is worth dying for. My grandmother lived a life devoted to Jesus, and today her talks have been made available in their original form. So you too can be built up through the insights and mysteries God revealed to her throughout her ministry. Now, without further ado, here is Elizabeth Elliot. High in the mountains of North Wales, in a place called Llana Malwy, lives a shepherd named John Jones with his wife, Madi, and his black and white dog, Mac. I stood one misty summer morning in the window of their farmhouse, watching John on horseback, herding the sheep with Mac. A few cows were quietly chewing their cud in a nearby corner, while perhaps a hundred sheep moved across the dewy meadow toward the pens where they were to be dipped. Mac, a champion Scottish collie, was in his glory. He came of a long line of working dogs, and he had sheep in his blood. This was what he was made for. This was what he had been trained to do. And it was a marvelous thing to see him circling to the right, circling to the left, barking, crouching, racing along, herding a stray sheep here, nipping at a stubborn one there, his eyes always glued to the sheep, his ears listening for the tiny metal whistle from his master, which I couldn't hear. Marty took me to the pens to watch what John had to do there. When all the animals had been shut inside the gates, Mac tore around the outside of the pens and took up his position at the dipping trough, frantic with expectation, waiting for the chance to leap into action again. One by one, John seized the rams by their curled horns and flung them into the antiseptic. They would struggle to climb out the side, and Mac would snarl and snap at their faces to force them back in. Just as they were about to climb up the ramp at the far end, John caught them by the horns with a wooden implement, spun them around, forced them back under again, eyes, ears, and nose, and held them for a few seconds. I've had some experiences in my life which have made me feel very sympathetic with those poor rams. I couldn't figure out any reason for the treatment that I was getting from the shepherd that I trusted. And he didn't give me a hint of explanation. As I watched the struggling sheep, I thought if only there were some way to explain but such knowledge is too wonderful for them. It's high. They cannot attain unto it. So far as they could see, there was no point whatsoever. When the rams had been dipped, John rode out again on his horse to herd the ewes, which were in a different pasture. Again, I watched with Muddy as John and Mac went to work the one in charge, the other obedient. 
Sometimes, tearing at top speed around the flock, Mac would jam on four-wheel brakes, his eyes blazing but still on the sheep, his body tense and quivering, but obedient to the command to stop. What the shepherd saw, the dog could not see. The weak you that lagged behind, the one caught in a bush, the danger that lay ahead for the flock. Do the sheep have any idea what's happening? I asked Mari. Not a clue, she said. And what about the dog? I can't forget her answer. The dog doesn't understand the pattern, only obedience. There are those who would call it nothing more than a blind obedience, a conditioned reflex. But in that Welsh pasture, in the cool of that summer morning, I saw far more than blind obedience. I saw, acted out, exactly what I want to talk about tonight. I saw two creatures who were, in the fullest sense, in their glory. A man who had given his life to sheep, who loved them and loved his dog, and a dog whose trust in that man was absolute, whose obedience was instant and unconditional, and whose very meat and drink was to do the will of his master. He never stopped wagging his tail. I delight to do thy will, was what Max said. Yea, thy law is within my heart. My topic is the glory of God's will. My husband used to say that a speaker has four speeches. The one he prepares, the one he actually delivers, the one his audience thinks it heard, and the one that gets reported in the newspapers the next day. And there is not necessarily any relationship between them. In an effort to bring into closer alignment what I want to say with what you hear me say, I'm going to tell you what it is, then I'm going to try to say it, and then I'll tell you what I've said. One, the glory of God's will for us means absolute trust. Two, it means the will to do his will. And three, it means joy. Now, what is this thing called trust? Did Mac's response to John's commands hinge on the dog's approval of the route his master was taking? Mac didn't know what the shepherd was up to, but he knew the shepherd. Have you, a, have you and I got a master we can trust? Do we ask, first of all, to be allowed to examine and approve the scheme? The Apostle Paul 
never said, I know what God is up to. He said, I know whom I have believed. We start then with the recognition of who God is. He is our creator, the one whose spoken word called into being the unimaginable thing called space, which scientists tell us is curved, and the equally unimaginable thing called time, which the Bible tells us will cease. He set the stars in their trajectories and put the sliding shutter on the lizard's eye. This is the God who dreamed you up, thought of you before light existed, created you, formed you, and now calls you by name. He says, fear not, Susan. He says, I have redeemed you, Steve. When the Apostle John was an old man in exile on an island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, he was granted a vision of one like a son of man, eyes like a flame of fire, a voice like a waterfall, his face shining like the full strength of the sun. And in his hand he held seven stars. Old John, who had known and loved Jesus, fell at his feet as one dead. And then the hand that held the seven stars was laid on him. And the voice that was like a thundering cataract said, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I died, I am alive, I have the keys. Now write what you see. What John saw turned out to be the book of the Revelation, the most abstruse of all the books of the Bible, full of bowls of wrath and bizarre beasts and lightning and harps and smoke and seas of glass and rainbows of emerald. The courage it took to put all that down in writing for other people to read came from the vision that John had had of who it was that was asking him to do it. It's this same one who asks you and me to do what he wants us to do. The God of creation who's got the whole wide world in his hands. The God who in the person of Jesus Christ for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was made man and was crucified. Those hands that keep a million worlds from spinning into oblivion were nailed motionless to a cross for us. That hand that held the stars laid on you. Can you trust him? Two thousand years ago, Paul said that the Jews were looking for miracles. The Greeks were seeking after wisdom. 
Not much has changed, has it? People are still looking for instant solutions, chasing after astrologers and gurus and therapists and counselors. But Christianity still has only one story to tell. It's an old, old story. Jesus died for you. Trust him. Karl Barth was once asked to sum up in a few words all that he had written in the field of theology. This was the sum. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. If you can trust that kind of God, what do you do next? You do what he tells you. You obey. This was the second thing that I saw as I watched the shepherd and his dog. If you know your master, you will to do his will. This world is his show. He's running it. Do we think of it as under our management, created for the service of our own desires? Do your own thing, they tell us. They even say, if it feels good, do it. Have you ever heard a more idiotic piece of advice? Is it our world a sort of make-your-own-Sunday proposition with the will of God just a nice, creamy squirt of earthly success and heavenly approval that goes on top? The will of God is not something you add to your life. It is a course you choose. You either line yourself up with the Son of God and say to the Father, Thy will be done. Or you capitulate to the principle which governs the rest of the world and you say, My will be done. Harry Blaymeyers has said, from the human race today goes up one mighty prayer of praise and one tremendous shout of defiance against the loving rule of God. At every moment and in every act or thought, we swell the volume of that hymn of praise or else of that cry of blasphemous rebellion. We identify ourselves with Christ, or we deny him. Jesus chose a path and went down it like a thunderbolt. When we say, as Christ did, I have set my face like a flint to do his will, we are baptized into his death, and like the seed which falls into the ground and dies, we rise to new life. We have shared his death, Paul wrote to the Romans. Let us rise and live our new lives with him. Put yourselves in God's hands as weapons of good for his own purposes. That's hard, clear language. Put yourself. Obedience to God is action. I can't find anything about feelings in the scriptures that deal with obedience. It's an act of the will. Our wills are ours, wrote Tennyson, to make them thine.
God gave us this precious gift of freedom of the will so that we would have something to give back to him. Put yourself in his hands. Choose. Give yourself. Present your bodies a living sacrifice until you offer up your will you do not know Jesus as Lord. There are many men and women here tonight, I'm sure, who have made this choice and have said the eternal yes to God, thy will be done. But you're wondering when I'm ever going to get to the part about how you can know what it is that God wants you to do. If you can just figure out what the orders are, you're willing to obey them. You wish with all your heart that it was as clear to you as the pillar of fire was to the children of Israel or the little metal whistle to the collie dog. You high school seniors don't know which college to go to. You college freshmen wonder what you're going to major in. A lot of you came to Urbana perplexed about a missionary career. Are you called or not? And it's just possible that there are a dozen or so here who would like to get married. How can you possibly know? Let me tell you a story. When the author of Christ the Tiger was a small boy, he used to pull out of the cupboard the paper bags that his mother saved and spread them around the kitchen floor. This was permitted on the condition that he collect them and put them away when he finished playing. One day his mother, who also happens to be my mother, found the bags all over the kitchen. and Tommy in the living room where his father was playing the piano. When she called him to pick up the bags, there was a short silence and a small voice. But I want to sing Jesus Loves Me. <laughs> My father took the opportunity to point out that it's no good singing God's praises while you're being disobedient. To obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. To will to do God's will involves body, mind, and spirit, not spirit alone. Bringing the body under obedience means going to bed at a sensible hour, watching your weight, cutting out the junk food, grooming yourself carefully for the sake of others. It means when the alarm clock goes off, your feet hit the floor. You have to move. Some of you remember hearing of Gladys Aylward, that remarkable little London parlor maid who went to China as a missionary. She spent seven years there of happy single life before an English couple came to work nearby. And as she watched them, she began to realize that she had been missing out on something wonderful. So she prayed that God would choose a man for her in England, call him, and send him straight out to her part of China and have him propose. <laughs> then as she told me this story, she leaned toward me on the sofa where we were sitting, 
her bony little finger pointing into my face. And she said, Elizabeth, I believe God answers prayer. <laughs> he called him, but he never came. <laughs> A little like the alarm clock. The call to duty. But you have to put your feet on the floor. So much for the obedience of the body. Bringing the mind under obedience means, for example, doing that reading your professor has assigned. The will of God for a student is to study. You don't need to do any praying about whether you should study. <laughs> the will of God for a Christian is to be a witness. You are the light of the world. My witnesses, Jesus said. You don't need to do any praying about whether this is your job or not. But bringing the spirit under obedience entails plenty of praying for understanding and for guidance about the how, when, and where. The Bible won't tell you whom to marry or what mission field to go to. But I believe with all my heart that as you seek honestly to do the things you're sure about, God will show you the things you aren't sure about. We might as well admit that most of our difficulties are not with what we don't understand, but with what we do understand. In preparation for writing a book on the guidance of God, I read through the entire Bible to find out how he guided people in those days. I found that in the overwhelming majority of cases, it was not through what we'd call supernatural means, voices, visions, angels, or miracles, but by natural means. In the course of everyday circumstances, when a man was simply doing what he was supposed to be doing, taking care of sheep, or fighting a battle, or mending fishnets that he received his guidance. Just before he issued the Emancipation Proclamation, a group of ministers urged Abraham Lincoln to grant immediate freedom to all slaves. It is my earnest desire to know the will of providence in this matter, Lincoln wrote, and if I can learn what it is, I will do it. I suppose it will be granted that I am not to expect a direct revelation. I must study the plain physical facts of the case and learn what appears to be wise and right. The subject is difficult, and good men do not agree. Lincoln sets for us a sane and humble example. There is no reason to assume that divine guidance is a purely spiritual matter or an inward impression. If we belong to the Lord, lock, stock and barrel, body, mind and spirit, why should we expect him to employ only the spirit? Lincoln said, I must study the plain physical facts of the case. If the case happens to be the matter of becoming a missionary, you have to believe that God has something to do with your even considering such a career at all. What brought it to your attention? 
How come you're here at Urbana? Think of all the things that had to fit together to get you here at all. You heard about it. Friends talked about it. You couldn't see giving up your Christmas vacation to go and listen to a bunch of preachers or missionaries. You didn't have time. You didn't have the money. And here you are. You ask God to speak to you. You look at a particular need, and you see that you could, in fact, fill that need. The timing is right. My time, said the psalmist, are in thy hands. You have certain gifts. Oh, but mine aren't any good. I mean, like you know, I can't do what she does, you say. I'm not talking about what she does. Consider the gifts that God gave you. Circumstances may point the way. Even your own desires could be sanctified and used for God's purposes. Study the facts, the need, the timing, gifts, circumstances, desires, the clear command to witness Use your head. Don't over-spiritualize. Trust the shepherd to show you the path of righteousness for his name's sake. And remember that nobody can steer a car that's parked. One week before I graduated from college, I learned that a young man named Jim Elliott was in love with me. For months, I had been hoping that this would happen. <laughs> but I kept telling myself that it would be fatuous to imagine that he could ever look twice at me. He was what we used to call a BTO, a big-time operator, <laughs> while I was a TWO, a teeny-weeny operator. <laughs> and I was sure that every little sign that he might be interested in me was only my desperately wishful thinking. But no, he told me that he loved me. My heart turned over and then sank like a stone when he went on to say that he hadn't the least inkling that God wanted him to marry me. He was going to South America. I thought I was going to Africa. Each of us had just been through months of heart searching in an attempt to accept the possibility of life as a single missionary. We believed we had reached that point and then wham, here we were in love. How do you discern the will of God when your own desires shout so loud? We prayed the prayer of Whittier, Whittier's hymn, Breathe through the heats of our desire thy coolness and thy balm. Let sense be dumb, let flesh retire, speak through the earthquake, wind and fire, O still small voice of calm. We prayed Amy Carmichael's prayer. I pray thee hush, the hurrying, eager longing. I pray thee soothe the pangs of keen desire, see in my quiet places wishes thronging. Forbid them, Lord, purge, though it be with fire, and work in me to will and do thy pleasure, till all within me peaceful, reconciled, tarry content, my well-beloved's leisure at last.
at last, even as a weaned child. And one evening as we talked about what was at stake, we agreed that it was really too big for us to handle. God's call to the mission field was strong. Our love was, if anything, stronger. There seemed to be only one thing to do, to put the whole thing back into the hands that made us and let him do what he wanted with it. If he didn't want us together, that would be the end of it. If he did, no good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. We had to believe that promise. Some of you know the end of the story. We waited five years. Then God gave us to each other for two years. Does this make the will of God sound even more scary? Let me go on to the third lesson. You've forgotten the first two by now. The shepherd and his dog reminded me that the glory of God's will means first, absolute trust. It means second, the will to do his will. And it means, believe me, young men and women, it, it means joy. It can't mean anything less from the kind of God we've been talking about. He made us for glory and for joy. Does he ask us to offer up our wills to him so that he can destroy us? Does he take the desire of our hearts and grind it to a powder? Be careful of your answer. Sometimes it seems that he does just that. The rams were flung helplessly into the sheep dip by the shepherd they had trusted. God led the people of Israel to a place called Marah, where the water was bitter. Jesus was led into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. The disciples were led into a storm. John the Baptist, the faithful servant, at the whim of a silly dancing girl and her evil scheming mother, had his head chopped off. Nearly 21 years ago, five American missionaries attempted to take the gospel to a group of jungle Indians who had never heard of Christ. On the eve of their departure, they sang that great hymn by Edith Cherry from the InterVarsity Hymnal. We rest on thee, our shield and our defender. We go not forth alone against the foe, strong in thy strength, safe in thy keeping tender. We rest on thee, and in thy name we go. One of the men was Jim Elliott, my husband by that time, who had written in his diary when he was a junior in college, Father, take my life, yea, my blood, if thou wilt. It is not mine to save. Have it, Lord. Months of preparation went into the effort to reach the Alka Indians of Ecuador. The men prayed, planned, worked, dropped gifts from an airplane, and believed at last that God was clearly showing them that it was time to go. They went, and Jim's prayer was answered far more literally than he could have envisioned. They were all speared to death. 
five men who had put their trust in a God who represents himself as our shield were speared to death. They were speared in the course of their obedience. Now, what does that do to your faith? Does it demolish it? A faith that disintegrates is a faith that has not rested in God himself. You've been believing in something less than ultimate, some neat program of how things are supposed to work, some happiness-all-the-time variety of religion. You have not recognized God as sovereign in the world and in your life. You've forgotten that we're told to give up all right to ourselves, lose our lives for his sake, present our bodies as a living sacrifice. The word is sacrifice. In one of Jim Elliott's love letters, and they were different from most, I can assure you, he reminded me that if we are the sheep of his pasture, we are headed for the altar. That isn't the end of the story. To get back to the question as to whether God grinds our hopes to powder, the will of God is love. And the love of God is not a sentiment in the divine mind. It's a purpose for the world. It's a sovereign and eternal purpose for every individual life. Everything that happens, says Romans 8.28, fits into a pattern for good. There's an overall pattern. When my second husband was a boy, he used to visualize God sitting up there surveying a huge chart. He said he got this idea from the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, chart in heaven. Last year, my daughter and I had tea with Corey Ten Boom, and she talked about her own experience and that of my husband, Jim. She took out a piece of embroidery which she held up with the back to us, just a jumble of threads which made no sense at all. And she repeated for us this poem, My life is but a weaving betwixt my God and me. I do not choose the colors. He worketh steadily. Oft times he chooseth sorrow, and I in foolish pride forget. He sees the upper, and I the underside. She then turned the piece over, and we saw that it was a gold crown on a purple background. The dog doesn't understand the pattern, only obedience. As George MacDonald put it, obedience is but the other side of the creative will. I have two more things to say about the, why the will of God means joy. It is redemptive, and it transforms. It is redemptive for it means joy not only for me as an individual, but for the rest of the world as well. 
Did it ever occur to you that by your being obedient to God, you are participating with Christ in his death and then in his redemptive work? Paul told us this. He said, we have shared his death. We are weapons of good for his own purposes. Your response helps all the rest of us. Obey God, I say to you, for his sake, first of all. Obey him for your own sake. If you lose your life, remember he promised you'd find it. But obey him, too, for my sake, for the sake of all of us. There's a spiritual principle here, the same one that went into operation when Jesus went to the cross. It's the principle of the corn of wheat, the offering up of ourselves, our bodies, our wills, our plans, our deepest heart's desire to God is the laying down of our lives for the life of the world. This is the mystery of sacrifice. There is no calculating where it will end. This is what I mean by transformation. The bitter water the wilderness, the storm, the cross are changed to sweetness, peace, and life out of death. God wills to transform all loss into gain, all shadow into radiance. I know he wants to give you beauty for ashes. He's given me the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. Jim Elliot and his four companions believed that the world passes away and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Another translation says they are part of the permanent and cannot die. In Jim's own words, by giving up what he couldn't keep, he gained what he couldn't lose. Jesus had to go down into death. The corn of wheat had to be buried and abide alone in order to bring, bring forth life. I've told you what I was going to say. I've said it. The glory of God's will means trust. It means the will to do his will and it means joy. Can you lose? Certainly you can. Go ahead and lose your life. That's how you find it. What's your life for? Jesus said, my life for the life of the world. You must meet with the Lord each day, too. Now, when you and I were younger, I can remember some of the things you did. I don't know how you meet the Lord now. I know you do. And I know the students would like to hear something of how you meet God in your own personal quiet time. Would you share us a little bit with that? I get up early enough in the morning to be able to do this before breakfast. I spend half an hour, 45 minutes, usually. And 
I try to start out with a hymn. I don't sing it out loud. I have seminary students who live in my house, and I don't think they'd appreciate being wakened at that hour with me singing. But I go over the words of some morning hymn, such as uh, Glory to Thee, My God, or When morning gilds the skies, my heart awakening cries, may Jesus Christ be praised. There are times when, if I were to express my own true feelings, it would be when morning gilds the skies, my heart awakening cries, don't tell me it's time to get up already. (laughs) But as I said a few minutes ago, our obedience is not dependent on our feelings. We have to do a lot of things we don't feel like doing. I then read the Bible, asking God to open my eyes. I try to read straight through the Bible consecutively, and I read normally about three chapters a day, and make notes and underline. Sometimes I do topical studies or underline particular kinds of words. Sometimes it's marvelously illuminating to underline the verbs in a chapter or the nouns in a chapter. And then I pray, and I have a list My memory is terrible, so I have a list of people that I pray for every day, and then another separate list for each day of the week, which I usually go through very routinely, and you can be sure that I don't necessarily have any accompanying feelings that goes along with this. As somebody has said, pray when you feel like praying, pray when you don't feel like praying, and pray until you do feel like praying. And if I were to limit my prayers to times when I felt very religious or very spiritual, I would have done very little praying in my life. Then I also should say that I regard prayer as work. If it were just feelings, then I guess we could limit it to fun. But I do think prayer is work, and it's meant to be intercessory. Prayer is certainly meant to be work. Then if I have time left over maybe five five or seven minutes or so, then I read some other kind of book besides the Bible. Right now I'm reading a marvelous book called The Courage to Pray by Metropolitan Anthony. I pray you've been encouraged and inspired by what you've heard today. And will keep joining us here and on social media for my granny's inspiration. Until then, remember... The eternal God is your refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms.